This is the Humboldt Chronicles. I am the queen of everything. I gotta be high before I can sway. Lighter tea and let it be. If you a viper. I'm Chuck Rogers with producer Larry Trask and Comet the Radio Dog. The Humboldt Chronicles is made possible by Savage Henry Comedy Club and Goat Global Humboldt. Thanks for your support. We could not do it without you. This is the 48th edition of the Humboldt Chronicles, and it comes at a time of significant strain in the California cannabis industry. Prices are down for everyone, except the consumer. Tax and regulatory burdens increase the cost and complexity of doing business and prove insurmountable for some, and a large unregulated market continues to thrive, diverting profits and tax revenues. To talk over some of these issues, we sat down with former Humboldt County Supervisor Mark Lovelace. Mark served on the Board of Supervisors representing the 3rd District for two terms, serving from 2008 until deciding not to seek a third term in 2016. This was a pivotal period during which Humboldt transitioned from the Proposition 215 era, which afforded the cannabis industry some protection from law enforcement but imposed few regulatory restrictions, to what ultimately became our current Prop 64 era. Nowadays, Mark is a senior policy advisor for HDL companies. In his capacity there, he works with counties and cities in California to help them develop and implement cannabis policies. To begin our discussion, we asked Mark to hearken back to his days on the Board of Supervisors. What sorts of discussions were happening at the county level as Humboldt looked towards the prospect of full statewide legalization? When I was first running for the Board of Supervisors in 2008, as I was knocking on doors in Arcata, the big thing that I kept hearing from people was concern about grow houses, and that was just kind of something that was really of the moment right then in terms of where we were with cannabis. Um, we still called it marijuana back then. That was before the memo went around to, that we're all going to call it cannabis now. And people that had voted for Proposition 215 that supported the use of medical marijuana and even that, you know, used it themselves were feeling like what was happening was a little too much. Proposition 215, the Compassionate Use Act, people felt like their compassion was being abused. And there were houses in Arcata where you know, they were completely turned over with every room being a grow room now and no one actually living there. So that became an issue even before I got onto the board. I became very aware of those concerns. And then once I was on the board, in 2010, uh, Proposition 19, which was the Tax Regulate and Control Marijuana Act, qualified for the ballot. And that was the first real serious look at possibly legalizing cannabis in California. Unfortunately, the act did none of the things. Tax, regulate, control, it would have done none of those things. Instead, leaving it entirely up to individual counties and cities to figure out how to do it. But it became a serious enough issue, raised enough concern, that the industry started finally, up here in Humboldt County, started coming out of the woodwork a little bit and saying, hey, we need to really start thinking about what's next. We need to start thinking about what legalization would mean for our community, for our industry, for all of us. And it started a long conversation that ultimately when Prop 64 passed and prior to that when the Medical Cannabis Regulation Safety Act got passed, you got to a point of having regulation and got to something somewhat workable, though how well it's working for anyone involved is, of course, a matter of uh, quite a bit of dispute. And you know, Larry, Mark makes a good point there. That's exactly how it was during the 215 days. 
in my neighborhood, which was in Mark's district, the third district, there were houses that were bought by who knows who, nobody living there, the shades all drawn, and everybody knew it was just a grow house. Somebody would show up maybe once a week or so to check on things. You didn't know who it was, and then they're gone. And it was a huge issue. And those houses, of course, using a lot of power as well. Yeah, I remember those days very well. In fact, I knew a couple people who were engaged in that. And back then, people were, you know, they just wanted to keep their head down, yep. keep out of sight, don't don't make any waves, uh, go about their business and, and just uh, stay off everybody's radar. Yeah. And now... Some of those same folks are worried about things like branding. And so we asked Mark about that. Mark, what does the term Humboldt brand mean to you with regard to this issue? Humboldt County has name recognition to die for as far as this product goes. You go anywhere in the United States, you say you're from Humboldt County, and you're going to get like you know a nod of recognition and maybe even a little bit of a knowing smile from someone saying, oh, you know, they, they know something about where you're from. And that's a great place to start. But the industry really needs to convert that from what's been largely a punchline around the country into a real marketing tool. And that's not going to happen by itself. So there's a name, Humboldt. People recognize the name Humboldt. But that doesn't automatically translate in people's minds into meaning a superior product. People had thought that, you know, sun-grown, organic, outdoor, premium Humboldt County cannabis was going to demand a premium in the marketplace. And that's just not been the case. Many other places that didn't have this long history with cannabis that we had here in Humboldt County are getting a far better price for their product than what should be premium product from Humboldt. So that forced some rethinking of how to market the Humboldt brand and the amount of work necessary to do so. I think that as a part of that, though, there also needs to be recognitions. You know, I re remember back when we were first having conversations about legalization, what it might mean for the industry up here. You know, there was a lot of talk about being the Napa County of cannabis, which is great, but you need to recognize that if you want to be the premium prestige product, that means you're going to have a small niche of the overall market. You know, you don't get to be the Napa Valley of cannabis and also be the Joseph Gallo of cannabis. You get to be one or the other. How would establishment of Appalachians fit within the overall concept of the uh, of the humble brand? I think it's a good thing for the you know for the county to pursue. Um, I think it's important and it's helpful. It's another piece of the marketing matrix, as it were. But as with the other things, it's up to the industry to make something of it. Again, when I was on the board, there were two different faces to this. One is there's a legitimate public interest in making sure that the Humboldt County name is protected in that way. But beyond that, what the industry is able to make of that itself in terms of how it markets the product is unique to the, to the private interest, the private sector side. And that's, again, something that clearly still takes some work. If you start looking at you know, the wine industry as a comparable in this, there's something like 139 different AVAs in California and, you know, you think of all the ones in Napa and in Sonoma County, uh, even Santa Maria comes up, even though these are, in most cases, you know, Napa, there's a whole bunch of separate Appalachians down there, not just Napa. But those are probably the only three that most people are going to be able to name offhand. But then there's also like Lodi, there's El Dorado, there's Livermore, there's Temecula, there's all these different Appalachians that really wouldn't come to anyone's mind. 
So simply having that doesn't mean people are going to be to pass your door. It's up to the, the industry and the growers and the distributors and marketers to make something valuable out of that name. In most cases, I think you know, if you, again, looking at the wine industry as a comparable, in many cases, those appellations are probably used just to bolster sales within their local region rather than to help them gain access to new markets. If you get people that are tourists or on vacation or whatever, and they do a little local wine tasting and they learn a little bit about it and they say, oh, this is great, I'm going to bring some back to some friends. But that doesn't mean that when they get home, they're going to go out of the way to look for a wine from Lodi or to look for... Uh, a Syrah from Edna Valley or something like that. So the appellation is helpful. But another piece that's going to be really difficult with this industry is that thing I was just describing with the wine industry or even with breweries where an appellation, you know, where there's that local context piece. You can go to a place, you can go to where the grapes are grown, where the wine is made or where the beer is brewed. And you can get a tour and you can sample and you can buy something to take home. But the regulations applied to the cannabis industry don't really allow for that. And so it's going to be a little more difficult to be able to bring people in, give them that personal experience that turns them into being brand ambassadors when they go home that can talk up your product. We know that some brands can command premium prices that sometimes seem to veer into the absurd. For example... A Louis Vuitton airplane travel bag, which is shaped like an actual airplane, will cost you just shy of $40,000. Is the Louis bag 4,000 times better than the Valentina leather tulip tote, available for less than $100 at TJ Maxx? Compare at $170, (laughs) Chuck. What a bargain. A bargain indeed. We'll let you decide for yourself, but will this kind of branding actually work in the cannabis market? You've got to recognize with any industry like this, there's only going to be a small subset of the consumers that really care. And I hate to be that blunt, but if you look at these other industries and just across the board, the vast majority of consumers really seem to want just a consistent, reliable product. They don't need something that's cutting edge or that's finest thing out there. They don't want to have to know all about the terpenes and what specific cannabinoids are in that product or any of those things. They don't need to know its provenance. It's like with the brewing industry. There's somewhere around 9,000 breweries in the United States. And of those, something around 8,700, I think, that are considered microbreweries or craft breweries, which sounds like, you know, wow, they really have a huge portion of the market. That's great. But that 8,700 or so breweries share about 25% of the market. The vast majority, that other 75%, is held by a handful of really big, massive brewing companies. So that tells you that when you start looking at something like branding like Kona Coffees or, you know, following the Napa County model, you got to recognize that you're narrowing your market. You're not expanding it, you're narrowing it. And so that's great for those growers that want to pursue that model, that want to have a high value niche product or prestige product. That's a great marketing tool for them. But that doesn't equate into more sales for everybody. Those are two very different outcomes, in fact. So far, we've mainly been discussing flour, but one of the fastest-growing sectors in the legal marijuana industry is extracts. Wax, shatter, oils, resins. Does attaching the Humboldt brand to extracts make sense? I think that once you get away from flour itself, once you get into any kind of extracts or manufactured products, the origin of 
the cannabis that goes into it becomes almost meaningless at that point. You really get down to your THD content, your sativa versus indica versus hybrid, things like that. Uh, you know, you're really getting into, at that point, something much more, you know, you're talking about the Kona coffee thing. You're really, at that point, getting into more of the Folgers coffee kind of thing. Generally, manufactured products are uh, around 50% or higher of the market. So that means that you know, right off the top, you've got 50% of the market of consumers where the origin of your product really is immaterial to it. And so then you start looking at within the, the market for flower and for leaf, how do you make a name for yourself? How do you present your name? How do you get some shelf space? And in this case, you've got the difficulty with so many of these large vertically integrated brands that when they're opening stores, they already have their own in-house distributorship and their own branded products that they're carrying. And they've also got distribution agreements with other similar large brands that uh, they may have 5 or 10% of their shelf space available for everybody else. So they'll, they'll have like two or three, maybe four primary lines that they're going to carry and then there's uh, a little bit of shelf space for all of the uh, individual small brands from Humboldt or uh, elsewhere to fight over. In many cases, these stores, even they require that they pay for that shelf space. If you want to get your product in front of our customers, you rent the shelf space, you can put your product out there and we'll see what happens. So it's, it's really difficult for these small niche brands to get their name out there. Back to what I was saying about the you know, again, the wine industry is a comparable. The ability to go on a wine tour and go to the vineyard and go to the winery and sample a bunch of it and talk to someone that can tell you how this wine's made or the kinds of grapes that go into it and all these little details that can help to make the product more impressive and help to make the person more interested to buy a case of wine they can bring home and then share with friends and talk up this, this brand, this winery. Um, that, again, is something that you know, the current regulations don't really allow for that with cannabis. And so it makes it much harder to be able to do that direct-to-consumer marketing that's so important in building a brand for something that want to be a prestige product like that. During the course of our discussion so far, you've heard numerous references to the wine and craft beer industries as analogs to the cannabis industry. And indeed, there are many similarities. But there are also some stark differences, and some of those differences relate directly to the process of establishing a brand. Whether it's Anderson Valley or Napa Valley, you can go to a winery, you can sample the wine, and you can decide to buy directly from the winery right there, the yeah. folks who produced it. And cultivators here do not have that option. And yeah. it, it's hard for me to imagine how that would even come about, given the nature of this product. We hear a lot about direct-to-consumer, so I'm glad you brought that up. And, you know, along those lines, it's perhaps a detriment to this product in comparison with wine. That With wine, at least you've got this bottle, you know, yeah. or a case. You've got places that you can put information, you can put graphics or whatever to draw interest. Uh, cannabis is small and compact. Even with the, the different ways that it's being packaged, you know, some really nice jars and things like this and uh, ways to make it where there's something more tangible to the packaging itself, uh, more of a tactile experience and all that. There's only so much room you can put on that for information about the product. There's not a whole lot of room to be able to sell the product without being able to have that direct person-to-person -person experience that you can get in a... a a wine tasting or a vineyard tour or, you know, a brewery tour or something like that. 
you know, it's going to be difficult to be able to do that. But I do think that over the long term, my guess is those are things that are going to change over time to where you'll have some sort of an equivalent that can be done. But again, we're talking a long term kind of thing. So I think that the Humboldt brand didn't provide the huge boost that I think people were hoping for or expecting it might right out the door. You know, now you know, they're having a fight for uh, what value they can, having a fight for what market share they can with it. I think over time, um, as this whole industry normalizes, you know, it's far from normal right now. Again, 70% of it's still in the black market. You know, it's still in the experimental stage, I think. But uh, when we eventually get to something that's much more normal for it, I think that then there will be a greater opportunity for Humboldt County growers to be able to market themselves in a way that's more compatible with the values that they're trying to assign to their product. So what's the right answer? Should Humboldt County continue to pursue marketing plans that seek to establish the Humboldt brand as synonymous with top quality product, even though that may limit the size of our market share? Or is there a better way? It's a conundrum for Humboldt County because we have the largest number of cultivation licenses in the state, you know, kind of going back and forth with Santa Barbara County on any given day, one of them edges out the other. But Humboldt County currently is in the lead on that. And we have that long history with it. But that doesn't equate to occupying that same portion of the market. So it's back to that thing of do you want to have market share or do you want to have product value? If you want to increase your market share, one of the ways to do that is, of course, to compete on price. And so that goes against being able to push for a a higher value prestige product like so much of Humboldt County's industry had been hoping for. You know, I don't think it has to be an either or. I think the Humboldt County name can be meaningful to people in a broad sense, even if they're not going to be particularly knowledgeable about the specific product that they're buying. Just that that becomes one of the things when they're, you know, looking at things on the shelf. Oh, it's from Humboldt. I know something about Humboldt. That's from a, a known area, but it's not everything. It's not the thing that sells it. It's just a little extra that can help the person in making the decision once they're already interested in the product. It is a difficult place to be for the industry when you've got so many Humboldt County companies that are all trying to capitalize on that Humboldt County name, and there's only a certain portion of the market that's interested in that name in that way, or at least that's interested in paying more for that name. I think there's something like uh, 160 different companies currently in, in the cannabis industry in California, all using the Humboldt County name in one way or another, that have Humboldt in their name. And so that, too, becomes a little bit confusing. when you've got you know, products that are competing against each other with very similar names in the eyes of both consumers. After a short break, we'll continue our discussion with Mark Lovelace and explore the impact of taxes, regulation, and the ever-present unregulated market. Back with Mark Lovelace in just a moment. This is the Humboldt Chronicles. Welcome back to the Humboldt Chronicles. We're speaking with former Humboldt County Supervisor Mark Lovelace. So far in our discussion, we've mostly been talking about the Humboldt brand. But Mark's also a policy guy, so we wanted to get his take on a topic that you can't swing a dead cat without hearing about, or something like that. I mean, nobody wants to swing any dead cats, or... Or live cats, or you know, any animals live alive or dead. We we love animals here. We, yeah, we do love animals. In fact, the mascot of this show is a dog. So yes, we love animals. Why don't we just ask Mark about taxes? 
That's that's a good idea. Are taxes too high? Yes. The product is taxed at different places along the way, both at the state level and at the local level. Generally, the state taxes add up to around 25% of the product value even before you've introduced any local taxes. 25, 26% you're already paying as a state tax. And then once you start introducing the local taxes, depending upon their tax structure, it's really difficult to not exceed 30% of a total tax burden on the product. That's high for anything, for any product out there. It's just a very high tax burden. On the other hand, if you start looking from the city perspective, again, 70% of cities and counties still don't allow cannabis. And I can tell you from the work I do that the ones that haven't already jumped on it and you know, said, yeah, we're going to allow this in, the only thing that could get them to do that is the possibility of generating revenue through taxes. And so if you take that away, you're going to be less likely to be able to entice them to change their in many cases, very uh, entrenched values around cannabis. So if you talk about reducing taxes, I think it's important to recognize that the local government, that's the only way in many cases to get them to even consider allowing this industry at all is with the incentive of being able to generate some revenue. So if you take that away or reduce that or uh, limit the amount of revenue that they can generate by doing so, you're probably going to see a much slower uptake as we try to put it into that remaining 70%. At the state level, is there room to move? Yeah, you've got the 25%. And you know, if you bring that down, can you then capture some of that amount of product that's either originating in or moving into the black market? You know, It's very possible that you'd be able to capture additional taxes that are otherwise going to the black market so the state could potentially break even in doing so, reduce its tax rate, but capture taxes on a larger portion of the market. Again, that's one of the things that we'd really have to be able to see more information on where this cannabis is going to be able to actually understand whether there's a a valid argument there for being able to generate more revenue on a lower tax rate. How significant a factor do you think the presence of the unregulated market is in driving down prices in California? Well, it's it's a big factor, obviously. I think that we need to... When we talk about the unregulated market, it's not really a cut-and-dried discussion because the indications are that a large portion of that market, in fact, possibly the majority of that market, might even be being supplied from licensed sources. The track and trace system in California with metric, um, the data from metric is not made publicly available. And so it's hard to be able to see that to really answer some of these questions about where is all this cannabis going. But looking at you know the, the types of licenses, the maximum size of the cultivation area, the number of harvests they can get, running some standard metrics through that will come up with an estimate of anywhere from 10 to 12 million pounds of cannabis that they're capable of producing every year. But the data reported by the California Department of Tax and Fee Administration for how much cannabis is taxed, that shows less than 2.5 million pounds of cannabis actually entering the supply chain. So where's the rest going? And so to that degree, if we assume, as we already know in in many cases at least, we do read things about uh, distributorships using uh, burner licenses where they establish a license only for the purpose of making some big deal to move product into the black market and then disappear. We do know that's happening in many cases. How large of an issue that is, we can't really be sure. Is that really making up for that that whole gap between the 2.5 entering the supply chain and the 10 to 12 million 
being cultivated. We don't know that unless until we can actually see that data. But right now, the state's not making it available, uh, which is strange. You'd think the state would have a significant interest in, in knowing that. If that is the case, though, then you have the legal license market is creating its own unfair competition. It's important also to look at another piece of that. Um, we see these stories all the time that keep coming up with the same kind of figure of uh, around 70% of the cannabis sold in California is in the black market. And they complain about, you know, oh, legalization and regulation was supposed to uh, make the black market go away. And instead of thriving, it still makes up 70% of the market. But 70% of cities and counties in California still don't allow legal cannabis. They don't allow the sale of legal cannabis. And so the only way for people to be able to access cannabis in those places is through the black market. And then they wonder, why do we have a thriving black market? This is not rocket science. That figure also, coincidentally, lines up very cleanly with the fact that, again, looking at 10 million pounds of production, 2.5 million pounds entering the market, 75% of our production capacity is going unaccounted for. Consistently, if you look at the areas of California, geographically, where people are 30 minutes or more away from legal access and the portion of population in there, so you keep coming up with the same balance of 25 to 30% um, in the legal industry and 70 to 75% in the black market. And these figures are just consistent in all these different metrics, which really makes it look like the primary culprit is the lack of cities and counties allowing for the industry. If you don't have legal access, you shouldn't be surprised that people are going to be looking for other ways to get their cannabis rather than driving two hours to some other place to be able to buy it. We'll take a peek into the future next as we discuss the ways the seemingly inevitable move to federal legalization and interstate commerce might impact Humboldt County. We'll also find out if Mark Lovelace is an optimist or a pessimist as he ponders our cannabis future. The Humboldt Chronicles continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Humboldt Chronicles. For the final segment of our program, we asked our guest, former county supervisor and current policy advisor Mark Lovelace, what he thinks the implications of federal legalization might be for the Humboldt cannabis industry. Mark, one of the things that we keep hearing over the years doing this program is that federal legalization is inevitable at some point. Nobody knows when, but we keep hearing that it's inevitable. So do you think that federal legalization and the resulting interstate commerce would be beneficial or harmful for the Humboldt County cannabis industry? Um, I do think that it's inevitable. I don't know when, uh, but I do think that we also need to keep in mind that even if federal prohibition were to fall tomorrow, it's still going to take uh, you know, a year or more before that actually gets codified in a way that allows that to really happen probably closer to two. And then even with that, every state right now, as of California, they only allow legal sale of cannabis that was grown under the guidelines of their own state program. And so once that falls, it doesn't mean that you can sell your product anywhere. Every state right now prohibits the sale of product that, you know, from outside. So you have to see a lot of that happen. A lot of those changes happen. Presumably some states would jump at it. Presumably others would be looking at can we do this in a protectionist way that allows you know our growers and manufacturers to be able to sell their product outside while preventing product from coming in and competing in our in-state market. 
there's a lot of different ways this could happen. But I think that even at the most wishful thinking, I think you know, you'd probably be looking at at least five years before you'd have a real workable interstate market. And then when you turn that around, like you're hinting at, not only does that allow more places for humble county growers to be able to sell their product elsewhere out of state, it also means that product being grown in all those other states can now come in here and create additional competition. You know, when I think about um, the conversations that we were having back in 2010 around Proposition 19 and this whole question of, you know, what happens if it's legalized, you know, there was a lot of concern about regulation and taxes and all of that. And that's all valid. You know, no industry likes to be regulated. No industry likes to be taxed. I've never heard anyone in any industry say our taxes are too low. But, you know, what I think is the biggest thing that this industry is struggling with, and which I really don't see mentioned well enough in so much of this dialogue, it's just the natural and predictable effects of exposure to the free market. And so those things we can talk about, do you regulate that interstate commerce? Do you limit the you know, amount of cannabis that can come in from elsewhere? We're only going to allow it from certain states. They have to do this, do that to meet California standards. There's a role for regulation in there. There's also a role for taxes. But the biggest piece of it is really going to be just the impact of competition. And that's not regulated. That's something that you know, each business has to figure out how are they going to stake out a really strong, workable, and marketable strategy within this increasingly complex industry. And, you know, there are all of these different things when we talk about uh, branding and we talk about the Humboldt County name and appellations and uh, all of these different tools. They're just that. They're tools. What you do with them is up to the industry and up to each business within that industry to figure out how they're going to be able to use these tools, how they're going to be able to exploit these tools, how they're going to be able to capitalize upon these tools to push their brand forward and increase their sales and their profits. Long term, are you an optimist or a pessimist about the Humboldt County cannabis industry? An optimist. Um, but I think I'd frame that as saying... Uh, over time, I think that Humboldt County can continue to hold on to its name in that way, but I think that core issue of how meaningful is that going to be, um, I, I think that what we're seeing right now is that if you want the place of origin to be important, recognize that there's only some portion of the marketplace that really is going to care at all about that. And it's fruitless to try to convince that larger portion of the market, you know, the, the Budweiser drinkers out there, basically. You know, no one that drinks Budweiser, I've never heard anyone ask, you know, where do the hops come from? What kind of hops do they use in their Budweiser? You know, that's just not a question. Uh, the portion of people, the percentage of, you know, beer drinkers that care about that are fighting over a smaller subset of the market. And so I think that that's what Humble County needs to recognize is, if you want to do this, you're going to be a smaller prestige niche product. And that's up to you to then be able to make that meaningful and convince people that it's worth paying more for that product. But you can't really compete on both price and quality. You have to kind of figure out which, which one of those you're going to pursue and make that your strategy, volume or price. All right, so Chuck, uh, Mark Lovelace is a long-term optimist. I guess my question yeah. for you is, are you? I guess I'm still an optimist as long as Humboldt County can figure out a direction for the future that would incorporate marketing to that small slice of the consumer market that does shop brand, as well as how to compete on price with volume. 
and I don't know that you can do both, can you? You know, I mean, that was one thing I kept thinking of as as Mark was explaining these things. He would talk about, well, you you can try to establish yourself as a premium brand and command a premium price, or you can compete on price. You can't do both. And I just, I mean, I, I'll issue the disclaimer that I am not a business person, so I don't, you know, I don't have this fundamental knowledge. But just as I look at it, I don't see how Humboldt County could compete on price because what you need is volume. For one thing, we just don't have the, the flat land that they have in, for example, Bakersfield. So if you decided, okay, you know what, I am going to grow, you know, a thousand acres. First of all, that wouldn't be permitted under the rules. And secondly, you'd be hard pressed to put together a thousand acres here without a mountain in your way. Yeah. So I think that we have really smart people here. And I think we have people who have been in this business for a long time and have a lot of knowledge. And I think that that's important. Mm-hmm. And we keep running into really smart, really creative people who are are really dedicated to making this work. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I kind of grab my optimism from. But as we just heard, and, and I think as we all know, there's a lot of challenges. Not the least of which is 70 to 75 percent of the product in this state is still in the unregulated market. It seems to me no matter what you devise as a plan going forward, that has to be dealt with first, right? Yeah. I mean, think about any other industry that's facing one, uh, 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 roughly a 30% tax rate, mm-hmm. and two, 70% of your competitors aren't subject to that tax rate. I mean, how what, do you compete? What industry could survive None. under those circumstances? So None. it seems clear that we've got some, some big things that we've got to work out, um, but I know that we have good people who are working on those things, smart people. So uh, I don't want to leave it with a a fingers crossed, but uh, (laughs) we're going to have to figure some things out, it seems like. We're going to have to keep talking about it, that's for sure. I'm Chuck Rogers with producer Larry Trask. This edition of the Humboldt Chronicles will be posted soon at 941lounge.com, lostcoastoutpost.com, and at iTunes for listening and downloading. Thanks to our guest, former Humboldt County Supervisor Mark Lovelace of HDL Companies. And we send much appreciation to our sponsors, Savage Henry Comedy Club and Goat Global Humboldt. In keeping with tradition, your humble hosts will be taking the month of December off. So we'll be back with the Humboldt Chronicles at 6 p.m. on the third Wednesday of January. See you next time in the new year, January 19th at 6 p.m.